This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well, we're going to get stuck into the Word right now. And so if you have a Bible or perhaps you've got your Romans journaling Bible, why don't you open that up to page 9 and 10. We'll be there this morning or whatever device you have in front of you. Perhaps even you've got a hard copy Bible. The verses will be on the screen behind me and we're looking at Romans chapter 1 this morning. And as Jerusha read that... um, You might be bracing yourself. I have a hard word for us this morning, church, and uh, sometimes we need to hear God's truth, and sometimes it does cut and sting. And this morning, I am delivering the mail. I didn't write this mail. God has commissioned me to deliver the truth to you, and I want to do that faithfully, trusting that God wants to work this morning. So let me pray for us. Father God, we, um, we know that you know the needs of our church. We know that you're good and gracious and we've seen your hand of generosity time and time again in the life of our church. And so God, we want to bring before you the needs for 2019 and we ask that you would please meet those needs and meet them in abundance. God, we pray that you would please open the storehouses of heaven and bless this church. Please stir a spirit of generosity amongst your people. And God, as we come before you in your word now, we want to refuse to believe the lie that we are wiser than you. We want to uphold the authority of your word. And this morning we want to say, God, speak. Please speak to us. We need to hear your voice, even when it is confronting to our human nature. God, we want to sit humbly underneath your word and not stand over it. So please, God, by the power of your spirit, take these words and breathe life into our church. We prayed in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Well, all of the stats say if you want to grow a big church, then don't do these five things. Don't talk about money. Gee, I've already done that one. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about the wrath of God. Don't talk about the judgment of God. And certainly don't talk about sexuality, at least not in this part of the city. Well, we've done one and I'm about to do the next four this morning. And it just so happens that this is where we are in the book of Romans. And we are up to what is called the bad news section of Romans. And our aim here at Anchor has never been um, to preach a message that would put bums on seats and to gather a crowd, but to point thirsty, hungry people towards our Savior Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul's intent is with this word here this morning. This is the bad news. And without the bad news, the good news is at best muffled and at worst entirely irrelevant. And we need to hear the bad news. It's, It's... The contrast that Paul builds here in the first couple of chapters of Romans. If you think about um, where we are in the season of our year, we've just moved from summer into autumn. Is that right? Summer Summer to autumn, yes. And we're getting ready for winter. And we're in this weird season of the year where you will have a 42 degree day and then the next day will be like 18 degrees. And there's this beautiful sense of relief that you feel, isn't it? You're like, this is amazing. Yesterday was so hot. I love the weather today. And yet you fast forward three months time or four months time to July. And yet there's an 18 degree degree day. And you're like, I cannot wait for summer. When will this warm weather return? Now, what's the difference between one day that has 18 degrees and another day that's 18 degrees is the contrast. You see, in February, you feel it. You feel the relief. In July, it's like, this is like every other day. 
And this is what we get here in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, is this contrast between good news and bad news. And Paul is going to deliver the bad news first. And so my aim this morning um, is to actually bring us to the end of ourselves. That we would know God's diagnosis of us as people. These verses are honest and they're confronting about who we are ourselves, about our culture and about our world. This passage is kind of like a visit to the specialist. When you go to the specialist and you get the news of your diagnosis and it needs to be accurate and it needs to be honest and sometimes it's really brutal because if you don't have an accurate diagnosis, you don't know what the treatment is. You don't know what the solution is. And so Paul gives us an accurate assessment of our souls and of our world. Now, I recognize that everyone here this morning, not everyone in this room is a believer, a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And so you may hear this and think, well, I don't agree with this assessment, and that's okay. Our, our worldviews are uh, increasingly further and further apart. So you may not agree with Paul's assessment and diagnosis. And my guess is you certainly are not going to agree with Paul's sexual ethic, with our sexual ethic. But there is one thing that I think we can all agree on. And that is we look at this world, we see a problem. And if we give ourselves a moment of perceptive honesty, there's not just a problem out there, there's, there's also a problem in here, in us. And so Paul will diagnose us. Because we need a solution to the problem. And he's preparing us for that solution. A number of years ago, there was a professor of seismology in Japan. By the, and his name is the coolest name in the world. But I've got to read it. Katsuhiko Ishibashi. Professor Ishibashi. What a cool name, right? In the early 2000s, he began to warn the Japanese government that there was imminent danger because they had constructed nuclear power plants along earthquake fault lines. And they'd done that based on old and poor evidence of seismology. And the engineers had done that in a sense of overconfidence on their ability to construct something that would withstand an earthquake. In 2006, he was on a government task force that made recommendations to the Japanese government that they needed to act decisively and immediately to avoid imminent disaster because of these structures that had been built in fragile places with ill-equipped advice. And on May 11, 2011, his greatest fears were realized when uh, an offshore earthquake triggered a massive tsunami that rolled into Japan and caused the nuclear meltdown of the Fukushima power plant in Japan. A Category 7 nuclear disaster, the highest level of nuclear disaster that you can have and the second worst nuclear disaster the world has ever seen. Now, what would have happened if the Japanese government had chosen to listen and heed the warnings that he had offered? Thousands of lives would have been spared. Trillions upon trillions of dollars would have been saved. If they had just heeded the advice that he had given and not been optimistic about their ability to withstand a natural disaster. And it seems to me that that is what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 1. He's issuing us a warning. Humanity, disaster awaits. Wake up, 
Look at the evidence. That is why Paul is eager and unashamed to preach the gospel. Because of the good news that Jesus saves and because of the predicament of humanity, he is eager and unashamed to preach the good news. In, in Romans 1 verse 17, Paul says that the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now he's not going to tell us what that righteousness is specifically until chapter 3 verse 21. And so from 118 to 320, Paul is going to fill that gap with bad news. And instead of moving on from that thought, the righteousness of God is revealed, he says the wrath of God is revealed. And he will paint the bad news for us. And what he does is he works from generals to specifics to bring an honest and confronting diagnosis to humanity. And he addresses four groups of people. The first group we've called the rebels, but they're actually just the Gentiles, everyone who falls outside of those who sat under the law of Moses and the prophets of the Old Testament, were Gentiles. And Paul addresses the Gentiles first, and that's who I'm going to focus on this week. But next week, Alnado is going to focus on the next three categories of people that Paul will address. The, the critical moralizers, category two, the self-righteous Jews, category three, and then in case he's missed anyone in the first three categories, he says everyone everywhere. He is building a case against humanity as if we're stepping into the courtroom and he's setting up the evidence. And basically his point is every single person on every single country with every single language and every single tongue has a heart that is corrupt and broken and sinful. That's, that's what he's going to do. And he's going to start here with the Gentiles, which is where we're going to focus today. This is the diagnosis of humanity. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodlessness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now the wrath of God is a statement that is found all across Scripture, Old and New Testament, and it is God's perfect, sustained and holy anger towards wickedness, sin, and brokenness. Now, it's important to note that the wrath of God is a universe away from human anger. Human anger is nothing like God's wrath, which is our anger is often self-centered and reactionary and fueled by vengeance. And the wrath of God is tainted by none of the toxins of human's anger and flippant emotions. It is right that when God sees people reject him, the creator of the universe, and destroy his creation and destroy other people, that he feels angry. It stirs his wrath. But you might say, well, surely a God of wrath is in complete contradiction to a God of love. And we, I mean, doesn't the Bible say God is love? Like, how can God be loving and wrathful? Those two things don't work together. Well, I want you to imagine for a second that um, it's a Sunday afternoon, come home from church, I'm sitting on the couch, and my two eldest kids, Judah and Piper, are playing in the living room. And Piper has a plastic Ninja Turtle sword of some weight and strength, and Judah has a toy that she wants 
And he's not giving it to her. And so in a fit of toy rage, she gets the sword and she cracks him over the head and splits his head open and blood is pouring down his face along with tears. And I'm sitting on the couch and I'm watching this and my response is, meh. In that moment, is that loving? If that's my response, is that loving to Judah who has been the victim of Piper's toy rage? Is that loving? Is that loving in that moment to Piper who has inflicted harm on her older brother? The answer to both is no. And I want to suggest to you it is not unloving for me in that moment to feel angry and then discipline my four year old with five minutes in time out as a result. That is what loving parents do. It's called discipline. Neglectful, unloving parents. Have an attitude of ambivalence. You know, the, the opposite of wrath is not love. The opposite of love is not wrath. It's actually indifference. And God is not indifferent towards our sin. If God is neutral, if He has an attitude of meh, He's not a God of love. He's not a God of love. It is precisely because God is loving. That he is angry. Now we emphasize God as love in our culture, and rightly so, it's true. God is a loving God. But the primary attribute that the church celebrated up until the mid 1800s was not God is love, it was God is holy. And yet, at some point in time in the mid 1800s, the church flipped and began to emphasize the fact that God is love. And around the same time, this ideology of individualism began to infect and invade the church. And so we have taken this characteristic of God, that God is love because it's about a me-centered God. It's therapeutic deism that says God exists to make me feel better. God is love, it's true. But God's holiness kindles his anger at our sin and brokenness and wickedness. And so it has been revealed. And yet almost like a reflex, Paul anticipates an objection to what he's just said. And the objection is this. Well, surely if I didn't know, God can't hold me accountable. And Paul's answer is, well, actually everyone is without excuse. Have a look at what he says in verse 19. For what can be made known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul, and we'll see this next week as Alnado preaches, Paul holds the Jews to account on the basis of what God has revealed to them. They have received the law. They've received the prophets. They have the Torah. He's going to hold them account for failing to live up to that standard. Now, when he addresses the Gentiles who do not have the law, who do not have the prophets, he will hold them to account to what he's revealed to them. And what he's revealed is his general revelation. That is everything that we can see around us with our eyes and touch with our hands and experience in this world. God has revealed something. It's what Psalm 19 says. The heavens declare the glory of God. 
The skies proclaim his handiwork. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. As we look around this world, we see the clues, the fingerprints of a creative, intelligent, powerful, sovereign God. There is something of the beauty and the order and the intricacy of this universe that has caused many people to look at it and say there must be something behind this. In fact, the British astronomer and atheist, the British astronomer and atheist Sir Frederick Hoyle says this, a common sense interpretation of the facts, that is, as we look at our universe, as we apply physics, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking of about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. The, con- the, the conclusion is God exists. Now, not everyone arrives at the position that we arrive to of the God of the Bible. But God's there. Now, to give you a more street-level uh, illustration of that, rather than the atheist astronomer, I want to talk about my friend Aaron. I remember sitting at a soccer grand final after party. We lost the grand final, so everyone came back to our house to drown their sorrows. And nearly none of my schoolmates are Christians apart from one or two guys. And so I'm sitting there chatting with my friends, and the conversation turns to the existence of God. And my friend Aaron says, with full confidence, of course there's a God. Look at this. Now, he spent a lot of time in the gym working on his physique, and to to be fair, he'd done a pretty good job. And at one level, that's a really arrogant statement, isn't it? To say, God must exist if something this phenomenal walks the planet of the earth. And yet, at another level, that's profoundly true. Not because he went to the gym, but because the human body is amazing. The intricacy, the detail, the planning all speaks of a God who has created this. This is not the product of a random freak mess of mutation, but of a good, powerful, sovereign God who spoke existence into being. And so Paul says, we're without excuse. Because even if we haven't received all of the revelation, we've received enough to know that God is there. And with what we knew, we turned our backs on God. And because we have suppressed the truth, Paul says the result of that, what that leads to, is idolatry. And what he unpacks here in Romans 1 is kind of like the anatomy of idolatry or the diagnosis that you go to the specialist to figure out how the cancer made its way into your mouth after smoking cigarettes for 20 years. It's kind of like this is how it all logically played out. This is what he says in verse 23. Excuse me. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. So they've suppressed the truth of God. They've become futile in their thinking. They do not view the world and self. That's we don't view the world and self properly. And their foolish hearts were darkened. The heart is the center of our will and desire and emotion and choices and actions. And it's become darkened. Claiming to be wise, 
They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, all sin in the end is a failure to give supreme value to God. We've exchanged the creator for creation. We've taken the things that the creator made and worshipped them instead of worshipping the one who made all things. You see, our hearts have been made for worship and when we suppress the truth of God's existence, take him off the throne, something else will sit in his place. We're made for worship. And in the first century, those things happened to be statues and idols made of wood and bronze and silver and gold. And in our 21st century context, there are ideologies and careers and people and cars and houses. But they're idols nonetheless. Our hearts are made for worship. And when we take God off the throne, something else will sit there. And Paul says that as a result of dethroning God and inverting his good intentions, God then hands us over in judgment. Have a look at what it says in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God, the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator, who is forever blessed. Amen. Three times God will say this. He ha- Paul will say this, God handed them over, God handed them over, God handed them over. In his judgment, he actually gives us the object of our desires. And the result is the things that we yearned for for so long, when we get them, they enslave us and trap us. See, we've believed a lie that when we get rid of authority, when we get rid of constraints, then we will be free. But Paul says the exact opposite of of that is true. When you get rid of God, when you get rid of our source of authority, when you get rid of his good constraints for life and human flourishing, we end up enslaved and trapped by our idols. Kendrick Lamar, believe it or not, says this in such a profound way. And what a transition that was. Kendrick Lamar says about fame and the desire for fame this. I just, this is a staggering, staggering quote. He says, One way or another, stardom destroys most people who achieve it. This is a cliche, one as old as Hollywood and the music industry, but that doesn't make it any less true. Imagine the disorientation that comes with becoming the one thing our whole culture looks at as an ideal. The 21st, in the 21st century, self-actualization validated by widespread affirmation is the closest thing we have to divinity. Fame makes the same offer as the serpent. You will become like gods. Only no one can bear the weight of Godhead. It gets to you. And even if no one else catches on, you know that you're a fraud. Listen to this. At some point, you have to buy into your own superiority or you'll crack. Sounds like Solomon. (laughs) The very thing that we desire ends up crushing us and enslaving us. 
what Paul will go on to do for the remainder of these verses is list off a whole bunch of behaviors that are a fruit of suppression of the truth, futile thinking, darkened hearts that pursue idolatry. And he's just going to talk about a whole bunch of those. And the most controversial of those, at least in our culture, what, what Paul says in these verses, no one blipped at in the first century. But in our culture, these verses are controversial because they address the issue of sexuality and in particular homosexuality. Now, let me say this. When we planned this out, we planned this like over a year ago and I had no idea that Mardi Gras would be last night. So this is not an intentional sermon to preach at our city. And I don't even think that's what Paul's intent is with this passage. But that's an unintended clash there. But let me say a few things about this before we dig into it. The church has a poor track record on how it has treated both Christians who have same-sex attraction in the church and the LGBT community on the outside of the church. We have a poor track record of how we've treated people and we can do better. And there is still room for us to grow. And so for anyone who last night partnered with Vine Church in Surrey Hills who are on the strip where Mardi Gras happened last night to serve people drinks and cook a barbecue and offer a place for people to rest. Thank you for serving our city and saying to people that even though we believe something different to you, we still love you, we still care for you, we're still here. So we've got room to grow as a church in our posture towards our culture and also to the way that we've treated those inside the church who have wrestled with same-sex attraction. The second thing to say here is that you notice that Paul addresses first, in verse 24, all sexual sin. He uses a really general way of saying all sex outside of God's original design for marriage between a man and a woman is sin. He's not necessarily pointing the finger at one particular expression of that. He's using that as an example of the general principle that he has just given. But as you look across Scripture... The theme is consistent, and every person has a, has a quota of sexual brokenness. Contrary to what many people say, this is not the worst sin on the list here, nor is it the unforgivable sin. It's just one of the many that Paul will throw out. Paul is happy to list other things there, things that maybe you might struggle with, Things like gossip, covetousness, which is desiring your neighbor's property, lying, deceit, disobeying your parents. The parents in the room say amen. As we read Romans 1, we ought not read this and cast an eye of judgment out there. We ought to read this and see ourselves. This is me. This is my heart. And the manifestation of my idolatry might look different to the next person, but I'm no better. Finally, the, the thing I want to say here is that Paul, Paul has issue here not with same-sex attraction, but same-sex action. There's a difference between desire and acting on desire. And many in the church have been told that your temptations are your sins. It is a sin to be tempted. But it's simply not true. It is a sin to participate 
God gives us his spirit to resist the temptation that comes at us from our flesh and from the world and from the enemy, our devil. Paul is not here to single out one sin. Rather, he wants to demonstrate that everyone who walks a trajectory of overturning God's good intentions for human flourishing experience brokenness. That's all of us, every single one of us. I remember a couple of years ago um, being on dad duty and watching the kids play on the trampoline. And they were playing with some friends of theirs. Our, our kids were playing with some friends of theirs. And their friends said to Judah and Piper, do you want to play a game? I said, yeah, we love games. What, what's the game called? They said the game's called Sin Ball. And the way this game works is that they throw a whole bunch of balls onto the trampoline. And as the kids jump around, they've got to try and avoid getting hit by the ball because the ball is sin. And as I'm listening to them explain the game, I'm thinking, where did you learn this? And they said, Sunday school. We play this game in Sunday school. I was like, this is the most theologically inaccurate game I've ever seen in my life. What is this communicating to our kids? That sin is out there and it can be avoided. Dodge it, duck it, weave around it. When the reality is, sin's in here. N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, says, The line between good and evil runs not between us and them, not between us and them, but right down the middle of each of us. There is wickedness in my heart. There is evil in my heart. There is brokenness and sin and rebellion in me. And so the secular humanist is actually far too optimistic about human nature. That says we're inherently good people, we just sometimes do bad things. That's a lie and a contradiction. We are not inherently good people who just happen to sometimes do bad things. Our actions spring from inside of us. I remember a number of years ago watching a TV game show, a reality TV game show, where they took contestants and they attached them to a lie detector and they asked them a bunch of questions, general questions, personal questions, but they didn't give the contestants the results of the lie detector test. And so then they put them on television in front of a live TV audience, friends and family and spouses are there, and then they begin to ask them the questions that they asked them in the interview. And if they get the question right, according to the lie detector, they win money. And if they get it wrong, they're out. Simple game. This woman is on the game show, and she's been doing really well. She's been getting all of her answers right. And then the presenter says to her, have you ever been unfaithful? Have you ever had an affair and cheated on your husband? And in front of a live TV audience, she says... Yes. And you can just see her family gawking and her husband dying inside and the audience like gasping at this confession that she would do it on live television. They interact a bit. The presenter asks the husband how he feels. It's really awkward. And then he turns to the woman and he asks the next question. And he says, are you a good person? person she answers yes and the lie detector reveals no and she blows it she loses all the money you see the problem is we have this way of convincing ourselves that despite the outward actions that deep down inside we're good people that God gives me a pass and the reality is our actions 
reveal what's inside of us. They reveal our hearts. They reveal our brokenness. And so our worldview of secular culture is actually way too optimistic about who we are and our capacity to fix ourselves. Now, chances are you're not going to hear this message anywhere else, all right, other than church, other than a church that believes the Bible and preaches the gospel. This is not what you hear in psychology classes on the campuses of our universities. This is not what you hear when you go to the counsellor or the GP or, or even in the circle of your friends. Like, no one says this about us. Why? Well, either this is harsh, unloving, unfair, and incorrect and insensitive, or it's prophetically honest. And the difference between those two choices is whether or not it's true. Whether or not this is an accurate diagnosis of humanity. If our lives are built on fault lines with dodgy engineering based on an incorrect narrative and script and someone warns you and says, look out, it's dangerous, disaster awaits, and it's true, it's the most loving thing they could possibly do. And so out of love, as your pastor, I want to preach the truth to you, not because I enjoy hitting you with a sledgehammer, but because you need to recognize the problem. I need to recognize the problem. Otherwise, we're never ready to receive the grace of God and the good news. You know, there was a, an exchange that has taken place in our hearts. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We exchanged the creator for creation. And yet 2,000 years ago, there was another exchange that took place. It was the exchange of the Son of God who was sent into this world and lived a perfect life, a life of perfect righteousness. And in 1 Peter, Peter says that Christ died for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous. An exchange took place. Jesus took upon himself at the cross all of our sin and our guilt and our shame and our brokenness and our mess and our rebellion and rejection and he died for it. He lived the life, the perfect life that we could not live because of our bent hearts. He dies the death that we deserve to die. And then a gift of grace, he gifts us with his perfect obedience and righteousness and an exchange takes place. The beautiful exchange of the gospel. The beautiful exchange that God would give everything to redeem and restore and reconcile a world that had shunned him and broken his good, holy and perfect laws. And until we grasp the reality of the mess that we've made of our lives in this world, that news will never be good to us. Until the Spirit of God convicts us that Romans 1 is me, not anyone else, it's me. I'll never open my arms to receive the grace that Jesus has to offer me. If you're a Christian here this morning, someone who worships Jesus, I hope you see 
that without this, we will never appreciate our Saviour. That without this, we will never understand the urgency of the mission that Jesus has called us to. And that without this, we will never see ourselves and our world properly. If you're not a believer here this morning, if you're not a Christian, you wouldn't identify as a Christian. I hope you see this morning a loving warning, an accurate diagnosis of your life and your mess and a solution to the problem that Jesus has paid for your sin. If that's you today, run to the cross. Receive his mercy. It's open to all who would receive it by faith in Jesus. Don't ignore the warnings. Don't believe the lie of secular humanism that is optimistic. Let Paul assess us truly and lead you to the foot of the cross and experience the healing grace of Jesus. We're going to respond to this truth by celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. And the elements on the tables here, the bread and the grape juice, represent Christ's body that was broken and his blood that was shed as a consequence of our sin to wash us clean. That Jesus' blood would wash us and make us as white as snow, spotless. And so I invite those of you who love Jesus, who are followers of Jesus, to participate in this reminder, in this celebration of the gospel by taking the bread, dipping it in the grape juice and eating it and remembering and celebrating that you were dead and Jesus made you alive, that your soul was dark and he spoke light into it and celebrate the good news. We're going to respond in prayer. Our prayer team will be up the back available. You can identify them with an orange lanyard around their neck and they would love to pray for you. Whatever need you have this morning, perhaps God's convicting you of sin. Maybe even this morning you are not a believer, but you feel the Spirit of God tugging at your heart, saying, come. Our prayer team would love to pray a prayer of repentance with you to help you receive God's grace and mercy. And we're finally going to respond in our giving. The buckets are going to come around now. And I invite those of you who partner here at Anchor to give joyfully, generously, sacrificially. If you're a guest, please, you're under no obligation to give. You can put your Connect card and your pen into those containers, and our Connect team will collect those. And we're responding to worship together. So I'm going to invite you to stand to church as I pray and as we respond to our good God. Father God, we thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth about who we are. We don't like hearing it, God. But we thank you that you care enough to accurately diagnose the darkness of our souls and then just not leave us there wallowing in our brokenness, but to love us by sending Jesus to pay for our sin. God, this morning we want to celebrate the good news the jewel of the gospel that glimmers against the backdrop of our black, dark souls. God, we want to celebrate that you have reached down into the mess and pulled us up and made us right with you, justified us. God, please wet our palates for Romans 3.21 for the good news. Help us to live in that reality 
Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. We bless you. We worship you in Jesus' name. God's people said,